Last night, Howie was talking about uh, the Four Noble Truths. Can you hear me in the back? Yeah. And he talked about dukkha. Do you remember that part? Yeah. You see me fiddling with this microphone up here? <laughs> this is the, the dukkha of the microphone. It's, it's not quite right. And so I'm fidgeting. This is, I'm just trying to be with it the way it is, though. Uh, <laughs> okay, it's this wire kind of hangs. Uh, that you know that would be some kind of teaching if I just sat up here for an hour and f- fiddled with <laughs> it, but it'd, it'd probably get boring fast. Um, so this, you know, this retreat, uh, we're calling it uh, Essential Dharma, and so we're focusing, of course we're practicing in the way we'd practice on, on many retreats here, uh, but uh, we're focusing on some of the core teachings from the uh, early Buddhist tradition. And, um, you know, so the first night we went over the four foundations of mindfulness, or the four domains for establishing mindfulness. Uh, and last night, Howie uh, was talking about the Four Noble Truths. Uh, these are kind of core things. So tonight, uh, the topic is going to be uh, have another number at the beginning of it. <laughs> but there are fewer of them. It, there's only three of these. So it's, it's the three characteristics of existence or phenomena, you could say. Uh, I feel somewhat less pressure than I did on uh, Wednesday night because there are only three. <laughs> so, uh, what's that? Only I only did. <laughs> I know, but but I was. <laughs> <laughs> the truth is what we have to sit with. Yeah, <laughs> this is true. I did only do three. But I was thinking about four. <laughs> so, so that's what I was carrying into the talk, was the four. And but what a relief that you can just end at three and not... <laughs> I could have saved myself that burden. So there's a lesson in that, too. Uh, so maybe I'll only do two characteristics. <laughs> uh, okay. Let's get serious. Uh, Some of this territory, of course, overlaps. So uh, we've actually talked about these three characteristics, but uh, from different angles. Uh, I'll tell you what they are not to keep you in suspense. The first one is that all uh, conditioned phenomena are impermanent. Yeah, Howie did this chant last night. Were you here for that? I won't ask you to reveal if you were not here for that. All conditioned things are impermanent. Their nature is to arise and pass away. Understanding this deeply brings the greatest happiness, which is peace. It's a nice thing to chant. So, that's one mark of, or characteristic of uh, all phenomena in this uh, conditioned world that we live in, uh, is that they are uh, in a state of flux and change. And this includes everything. Um, the second is uh, dukkha, which is um, something that Howie also spoke about last night, happens to be the first noble truth. Uh, and I'll just talk about it from a little bit of a different side of it. Uh, no thing, given its impermanence, can provide uh, a lasting resting place or refuge or a sense of peace and fulfillment. No 
thing. And the attempt to find lasting satisfaction, completion, fulfillment, safety in changing phenomena gives rise to dukkha, this mental suffering, dis-ease. I'll talk about that. The third characteristic of existence is that they are anatta, which is selfless in nature. Uh, They are uh, uh, arising, everything is arising due to uh, causes and conditions. Nothing uh, in the phenomenal world comes about uh, outside of the domain of causes and conditions. So let's start over. Here we are sitting, meditating, practicing being present for, as we've been talking about, one moment half a breath, or you could just say, for right now. Not extending that conceptually into the future, not taking on the burden of having to put two moments together or two breaths together, but just being here now. (coughs) This is what we're practicing again and again, remembering to be here. We use the anchor of the breathing, of the body, of stepping, arriving, abiding here. And you may notice that uh, over the course of a couple days, there is some settling which begins to happen. We start to for lack of a better way to say it, get a little used to being here. And there does, even though we are going nowhere, and there's no directionality in that sense to the practice, there's not a next. We're not, as Howie was saying, I love the way he says this, moving from the past through the present into the future. We are here. So in that sense, there's no movement. And yet... In abiding here in something in a way that becomes a little bit stable, I'll say a little bit, we are here long enough. See, I have to use time words to actually see something. I talked about this on the first night. To actually see what's happening here. When we're up in filter land, story land, and just caught, we, we, it's hard to see. There isn't this, I hesitate to say sustaining of attention, but yeah, abiding here. But when there is, we can start to notice that phenomena here in the present are arising and passing. And you have already been noticing this It's one thing to hear it talked about or to read about it in some book. Everybody knows that everything's impermanent. We already know that. But we tend to only know it in a very superficial way. Right? We know it intellectually. But we don't really know it in our bones. If we knew it in our bones, we wouldn't get so bent out of shape when an unpleasant feeling arose, or we had an annoying thought, or fear comes, or sadness. Uh, Or we feel restless or tense. We don't, I think we don't know that things arise and pass on their own often. We don't really know it because we're not here long enough in our ordinary lives 
so to speak, to see it. But you have been seeing it for days. That moment when you, after you first got here, when you seriously contemplated leaving, you know, when you're, you were planning your escape and, and how to avoid the managers on your way out. And, you know, it's like, how do I get my bags from the room to the car without anybody seeing me? <laughs> and where did that go? Or that, you know, the moment of just ecstasy on the cushion where you felt a tiny bit of calm and it was like the best thing ever because you've been suffering so much sitting here and finally you, where did that go? Or, uh, there are 10,000 things like that that have happened this afternoon. One of the great things about a retreat is it's kind of hard not to notice that. And nothing really, you didn't, we don't give you anything that you can really do. (laughs) It's like, there's not much to pin it on. So we can't help but see impermanence. We can't help see the content, just walking back and forth and walking meditation. Don't so many different things happen just in the course of one walking period? You're into it, you're bored, you're thinking about lunch, you're planning your future wedding or divorce. <laughs> no, you're, or your divorce and then your wedding, or you, you right? And then you're in the past, back in third grade, and then you're 20 years in the future, right? Isn't it highlighted when you're walking back and forth? Because nothing, the only thing that's changing are the conditions in your body and mind. And boy, are they changing quite quickly. When we're not sustaining attention, when there's not a kind of when we don't have an opportunity to see this, we maintain somehow the feeling that whenever any one state is present, it's like a permanent condition. If somebody asked us, we wouldn't admit to that, but that's the way we behave. We, it feels like a permanent condition, and I'm about to tell you why. Because what we tend to do is we tend to take our current state and project it into the future There's a kind of coherence to this. We take our current state, we project it into the future. This retreat sucks. It's going to continue to suck until the end, you know, usually. Or then it's a story about how sucky it is. You look back into the past from that place, and what do you find? You find evidence that is uh, coherent with the current state, too. All the incidents of meditation (laughs) sucking in the past, you know. And we build a sense of reality, a sense of the way things are out of this experience. And it feels like this is just the way it is. The fact that five minutes later it feels different, you don't notice. Because we don't see the end of that and the arising of the other thing in our ordinary life. It's happening just as fast in our ordinary life. I say ordinary, I mean outside of here. But we're too busy to notice it and too caught up in it to notice it. It's like, uh, it's kind of amazing actually. It's like we don't know who we were three minutes before. And so there's a sense of continuity of the current state, a feeling of permanence. I I find this like really fascinating. So being on retreat like this, even if you're not, even if you're meditating in a way that you think is, um, less than satisfactory, you still notice this. It's kind of what's cool about the form. If you're just sitting on the cushion, a few times in the course of a day, you'll notice it. It's different this time than the next time. Or it's different 
in the beginning than later. You just cannot help but notice it. And what this starts to do is undermine our belief in the permanence. When these conditions arise, we can no longer believe in this extension into the future and the past and the coherence of it all. It's harder to because uh, well, like I said on the first night, when you were the worst meditator in the room and then the next Buddha within the course of five minutes, don't you, doesn't that make you suspicious? <laughs> I mean, if anybody else told you that about themselves, you'd be like, hmm, I think something's going on. The rapidity of change is mind-boggling. As we, today we included thoughts in the meditation instructions. Have you started to notice just how quickly thoughts are happening? Boop, 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 boop. And associative change, boop, 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 you know? And uh, I think they spread out so quickly. So anyway, seeing, seeing it undermines our belief in any moment of it. And that's very liberating. Because then the next time you think you really, you know, there really is something wrong with you, you believe it a little less. Yeah. Because you've seen the momentary nature of that arising. Uh, even the sensations in your body, aren't they just... Aren't they changing? And your emotions, don't they just come and go? Interestingly, sometimes we, in our daily life, we never notice the endings of things. But here it's really interesting to be sitting with like fear. And then you sit with it and you see it end. Like you see it go away. That's extremely, that's a really good thing to see. Or you're sitting in some state of, total self-attack, and then it kind of just eases on its own and something else arises. You know, it's, oh, wow, I, did I do that? That happens. So it's good to notice uh, in a direct way this impermanence. Yeah, you, you can't get away from it. So because of, so I'm going to talk about all three, and I might then weave them together a little bit at the end. Because of impermanence, uh, we can't find a lasting refuge in any thing. Howie was talking about the refuges on the first night, right? taking refuge in the Buddha or wakefulness, clear in seeing. Yeah? That's a, a refuge, but... Uh, Taking refuge in your uh, story about how it's going or your story about your life, is that a reliable refuge? It's, I'll tell you the answer. <laughs> it's not. Yeah. Because that story is just too unstable. It's, it's created by thinking. And thinking is so fickle and variable. It's like if you were trying to build a house on quicksand or something, you can't, there's no foundation to build on. And so that's why we're constantly trying to keep the story going and amend it. It's like you keep building stuff. You keep putting, but it's not stable. We, you, we will not find a reliable sense of ease and well-being through a story no matter how good a story it is, the story of who I am. And it's not a bad thing to like, in therapy, find a coherent way of telling some of your story so that you kind of, you can make some sense of your life in a way that's feels okay. But it's, that's not a reliable refuge, even that. It's not, it, it will never encompass the whole of what you are for one thing. It's, it's incomplete. So 
And so to try to do that is creates uh, dis-ease. Uh, or, you know, the, the emotions you're feeling, it's amazing how identified we are with our emotions. Yeah, I'm an angry person, I'm a sad person, I'm a fearful person. Uh, but if you're really paying attention, you'll notice you have all of the emotions and they're changing. And usually we're just not, we're not seeing that, the range. We sort of like are used to the ones we're used to and we only see those. And, and it, it, it fits with this kind of the kinds of stories we have about ourselves because, and sometimes it's easier to see in children than it is to see in ourselves. And it's really easy to see in children who think they're stupid. You ever run into that or been in that situation? A kid who's been told that they're not smart. And then no matter how smart they are, and usually you can see, they cannot experience that part of that aspect of themselves because it doesn't fit. It's like that is invisible. And so again, that's part of the, co- the, the story, the limiting nature of the story. And all of this other stuff, which is arising and passing, it's not getting seen. So when we're in the present and our agenda is to see what is here, we start to notice not only are things impermanent, but there's a lot of stuff arising that's not just uh, fitting with the story. So I'm talking about building a stable base. Uh, You know, a lot of times people start to feel like at certain points in the meditating that they're actually getting somewhere. I love these moments. I'm doing it right. I'm getting somewhere. This isn't... And... then we build a sense of identity around getting somewhere. And how long does that last? It, It will fall apart. Your effort will be frustrated. That's one of the beautiful things about meditative practice, is you cannot succeed. You're guaranteed to fail. And that's intentional. It's, it's a setup to frustrate you, to frustrate the part of you that thinks you can make it the way it's supposed to be through your effort. You can make it the way you want it through your effort. That state of thinking you can make it the way you want it and getting it the way you want it is dukkha. That's unsatisfactory. That is a kind of dis-ease because you get it the way you want it. When that happens, it's for like a few seconds. So uh, if you feel like you're not succeeding, congratulations. (laughs) And I remember in my early retreats, I would, I was a I was a striver and I would be concentrated. You know, I have a pretty strong will. So I was really concentrating and I, you know, it was a little tension involved, I'll admit. You know, but I'd, I'd kind of get things somewhere, you know, they get stable and be like, and then it would fall apart. And then I would try and try and try to get things back to where I wanted them to be. And it was so frustrating. And again and again, I would try and try and try. And, and occasionally, I would just get so tired of trying that it would just fall apart. My effort would fall apart. And there would be peace. Yeah. There would be peace. 
for like five seconds. <laughs> and then it would begin again. You know, there's this like old stories in the Tibetan tradition about, uh, you know, some of these great old masters and their masters would give them these tasks to do like, you know, build a stupa out of stone, like a little temple. And they'd have them build it. It's not like hard work, you know? And then they'd be, it'd be done. And then they'd say, okay, uh, tear it down and build it over there. <laughs> I, have, I have, okay. Okay, now tear it down and build it over there. You know? Again and again and again and again. I mean, for years. This is the stories. For years. Can you feel... What, what's happening in that? Yeah. Can you just put yourself in the letting go of arriving that has to happen? It's too tiring to be arriving and to think you're arriving and then to not have arrived. That arriving is a fantasy and an illusion that we will arrive in the future is, uh, it is uh, a hallucination. Yeah? It is delusion. And the very attempt to do it is dis-ease. It doesn't mean you can't work towards things. It's different, just like you can continually work. But when it's hanging on the future, the degree to which it's hanging on the future is the degree to which you will experience yourself living in an unsatisfactory gap. So to attend in the present and to have a sense of the future is fine. You can have a goal or a, like, you know, but it's different to kind of be living out there than to be seeing it as an intention arising in the present here. Okay. So I hope you've been getting frustrated at trying to make things exactly the way you want them. This is dukkha. This, uh, this frustration that you experience, this dis-ease, is a gift. It's a gift because that suffering that you feel is the feedback you need for letting go. I don't know about you, but I do not let go Willingly. You know. Have you ever tried that with somebody? Somebody's really bent out of shape about something and you say to them, hey, let it go. <laughs> How well does that go? <laughs> and yet we think we can, should be able to do that to ourselves. Hey, let it, occasionally it works. That's the thing that keeps us. <laughs> Sometimes it actually works, but oftentimes, hey, let it go. If I could let it go, I would have already. <laughs> but actually, that's what's so powerful about practicing in this way, about being in sustained contact with reality. Reality teaches you. Reality is your teacher. And, and the, you know, in the old text, they have, they use this metaphor about a, some of the old teachings. They use this metaphor about a hot coal. When you feel the burn, if you're holding a hot coal in your hand, nobody has to tell you to let go. You don't have to like read a book about it. Uh, the Buddha said, I should not hold a hot coal in my hand. No, you just, your natural intelligence I think Howie might have used that term. I love that term. The nat your natural intelligence just let go. We are hanging on to all kinds of things and trying to build a house of... of I'll leave that for tomorrow. It's Howie's territory. <laughs> trying to build a sense of stability on this momentary phenomena. And 
the, just the very attempt, there's all of this suffering, pain in our attempts to hold on, to make it just so. When we feel the pain of that, which you are here, right? That's all the stuff that doesn't feel good. When we feel the pain of it, something in us starts to relax a little around it. It's your natural intelligence. It's when you're trying and trying and trying and it's frustrated, frustrated, frustrated. And some, some part of you just starts to like, have you had that experience? Yeah. Some part of you just starts to like, oh, okay. I'm just, I'm getting too tired. And, but you don't leave. You don't like go take a break and go, whatever. What is there to do here? Have a cup of tea. You know? And read the label on the tea. Who knew tea labels could be so interesting? <laughs> this tea comes from... <laughs> I forgot what I was talking about. I got too into the tea label. Uh, letting go, hot coals. That's, I like that. Uh, yeah, if we stay with the discomfort, we just start letting go. But it's not like the coal in the sense it's not all at once usually. Occasionally it is. But usually it's just like a little like softening around it. The degree, as how I was saying in that beautiful quote from Ajahn Chah, the degree to which we let go of this deluded attempt at arriving, building stability where it can't be built, the degree to which that we relax around that is the degree of ease and freedom that we experience. I mean, like how I was saying, that's what happens when the bell rings. When the bell rings, you just stop wanting anything. You stop trying to make anything, and there's ease. And you might notice it, and this is a sign, actually, I'm going to tell you. So if you ever want to fool your teachers into thinking you're an advanced practitioner... The way you can tell when someone has a seasoned practice is not that they come in reporting, a lot of people think this, I am feeling at one with the universe all the time. The way you can tell is by how somebody talks about what they're experiencing, especially if it's difficult. This kind of letting go of the attempt to make things what they are not is a mental thing. It's a, it's a, it's the letting go of clinging. It's it's almost hard to describe. It's sort of like this, you know. And then there can be more of an ease with what is, even when it's painful and difficult. That's sometimes called equanimity. You know, which is not just being tough. It's being okay in the instability. That's a, you know, a very reliable person is someone who you can be with when things are going awry and they are not going awry. Right? That's, a, that's a rare thing. You know? Someone who can maintain balance even when the conditions are either out of control or unpredictable because our, the refuge is not in the conditions, right? The balance is not located in the outer phenomena. And usually we outsource our balance to phenomena. Is that an okay metaphor? We put it on the conditions. I will have balance when I make the outside the way I want it. Yeah. And it, it, the, the thing about these things is they kind of work. They work just enough to keep us going. You know, it doesn't really work. It doesn't work in a really satisfying way, but it sort of feels like, you know, and we don't see it clearly enough to relinquish our belief in it. It's just, it lies out there. Maturity is, and sometimes this happens when people live long enough, or it doesn't always happen when people live a long time, or it happens when someone has really stayed present with experience. We, we sort of stop believing that. And then the balance starts to be recognized as something internal. It's the, as we've been saying, the relationship to these phenomena 
Okay. So dukkha is the second characteristic. It's not satisfactory. Things are not, you can't find any, that kind of refuge in things. And it doesn't mean it's not nice to get the things you want and to work for things. That's all great. So I'm not knocking that. I, I do that too. You know, it's not like I just, but it's really good to practice like here in this way, seeing the attempt at that here and noticing that the freedom is in finding a way to be with what's happening that's not Sometimes I laugh when these things are recorded because I do a lot of like <laughs> gesturing. And I had one guy come to a talk that I gave once. It was like a public talk. And he's like, I listen to you all the time on Dharma Seed, but you always have these things that you do and I can't tell what you're doing. You know, it's sort of like, there's just a silence. And I, sometimes I hear people laugh or it's just, but it's like, I miss a big piece. But it's sometimes you have to just gesture these things out. It's hard for me to like find the right words. So that's the second characteristic. And the third characteristic is that Things are arising due to conditions. Again, this is something we know, but it is really important for us to see this, to get this in a deep way. A place where we intuitively do get this is nature. And it's good that there's some place that we intuitively get this. When we look at nature, and we are in nature, well, first of all, yeah, we understand intuitively that things are moving and shifting due to a variety of conditions, right? We just get that, like the weather. You know, we don't, we're not saying like, who's making it rain? Well, some people might say, who's making it rain? <laughs> but it's sort of like, oh no, all of these different conditions coming together. You know, the, we've had a drought here for a while and the drought is due to all kinds of conditions, right? we get that intuitively. And I think, but we don't get that about here. We have somehow decided, I don't know how, that we are not a part of nature, not consciously. So everything that's arising in our mind and body doesn't seem like it's the same, but it is. The thoughts in your head, sorry, are conditioned. Especially all of those repetitive ones. The feelings in your body arise due to conditions, don't they? You don't always know what they are. There are so many various causes coming together to make anything happen that a lot of it's kind of mysterious in a way. And yet we can also see cause and effect. Like you can affect the conditions of things. Right? So here's an example that I have used. If you see a tree in a drought and it is parched, and dying. I don't think anybody would say that is a pathetic tree. What kind of tree do you think you are? <laughs> if you would just work a little harder, There is moisture in that ground. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can't even believe I'm still talking to you. <laughs> we don't do that. That's silly. We kind of get that, no, if you care about the tree, you, you will have to attend to the conditions. You know, and you might be able to do something for the tree. You might be able to shade it or water it or fertilize it, you, you, you know. And, and if you were to do those things, it would have a matter-of-fact quality to it, right? And it might be enough, and it might not. 
That is not the quality with which we attend to the causes and conditions of our life often. There are things we can do to affect change, to try to take the path that we want to take and make things go the way we want them to. There are things, but they are just a few causes in a very vast web of conditions. And somehow we are arrogant enough to think that we are in control of this whole thing. I don't mean to insult you by calling you arrogant, but there's a kind of a lack of humility in that. So I think it's really interesting to just sit and watch things arise in the mind and body. And you can see things arising due to conditions in a sequential way when there's some sustaining of attention, right? You can see a feeling in the body condition a thought in the mind. Your shoulder hurts and you think, I shouldn't have lifted the what have you. And that thought conditions another thought. I wonder if I should go see the doctor after the retreat. And that conditions another thought. I bet in 10 years, I'm not going to be able to lift my arm. (laughs) And that conditions a feeling. All of this Buddhist stuff about dukkha is really depressing and so is my life. (laughs) Well, that's actually a thought. But then there's a feeling of, oh. That feeling of, oh, might give rise. Then another thing arises, right? What might arise? Well, if you're here practicing and you've been hearing the teachings, a thought of the Dharma might arise. This is a feeling, an unpleasant feeling. Wow. Why did that thought come about? Well, partly because of some choices you've made, you know? You didn't decide for that thought to arise, but that's a Dhamma thought that arises. And then you say, maybe I'll attend to this the way it is. And then there's a kind of a sense of spaciousness there. So that's interesting. And then you think, hey, I'm doing this. Then a thought arises, hey, I'm doing this great. You know? And then you go into planning your future. So anyway, this is just a sequential thing. It's good to notice. They're arising due to conditions. You're not like orchestrating that. But this is a characteristic of existence that things are arising due to conditions. And the degree to which we see this in a deep way is a degree to which we stop taking personally what is not personal. And the thing that I'm almost hesitant to say because it's almost too intense, it's not too intense, is that none of it is personal. It's not personal in the way we think. We are adding the sense of I. We add the sense of I to fear. Fear arises due to conditions. And maybe fear is more conditioned for you because of certain things that you have experienced. And so you have things, fear popping up. But it's arising due to conditions. Then we take that fear and we say, my fear. This is my fear. And we identify with it as me. And that is something we add. Then a story of me arises around it, and that's a limited suffering identity. When we're just seeing fear is fear, it's just fear. It's a universal. Yeah? You shouldn't try to make this happen. Like, it's not personal. It happens naturally from seeing. 
You know, you, you don't take the weather personally, most of you, because you understand it, sort of. But this we don't understand. Uh, it doesn't even make sense to us because we haven't, paradoxically, interestingly, this fascinates me. You've been with you your whole life, and yet your body and mind are like a foreign land. And, and anytime you're in a foreign culture, it doesn't make sense. You don't actually understand how things are connecting. Is that true? Uh, I spent some time, some of you may have heard this story. I spent some time in the Amazon uh, region of Ecuador. A friend of mine there was from the Shuar uh, indigenous group there. And uh, we went with him to where his family lives, which is kind of out in the, uh, kind of away from the towns. Uh, and that's kind of Amazon region. And they live in a fairly traditional way. Right? And I spent about, well, I spent a few different times there, but one time, this particular time, about 15 days with them, and we did all kinds of things. But one time we were um, fishing. Am I allowed to say that at a Buddhist center? We were fishing. <laughs> we were fishing. It didn't happen here. Uh, they have this way of, um, uh, it's like a vine that they smash up, and it has some kind of toxin in it that when you put it in the river, it stuns the fish. Uh, not too much, because if you touch them, they kind of wake up. So it stuns the fish, and the women go up the river, and they smash up the stuff, and they... And the and the, the men, gender divide, just saying it, stand lower down and catch the fish. You just pick it up. I tried this and it was really, really hard. <laughs> I didn't get a single one. You know? It was like just you touch it and it wakes up, so it's like a skill thing. But anyway, I, I, I had I walked off into the woods because I had to pee. And I think I went like 10 paces. I peed and then I turned around and I realized I had no idea what direction I had come from. And I could not tell by looking. And I had a moment, it's amazing how quickly these things happen. I had a moment where I thought I could walk to Peru <laughs> and not encounter a road. That was not a happy thought. But all I, but then the next moment I just, all I had to do was go, whoo! And those, some of those guys were doing that, so I just imitate. It's a good way to learn things, to imitate. And then the sound that answered me was so embarrassingly close <laughs> that I kind of came out kind of like, who said who, you know? <laughs> I mean, it was like humblingly embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> and what I realized from that, and thinking back on it, it's like, when you're in a place that's new, you just don't know anything. I didn't know how to identify anything. And if I had tried to walk in whatever direction, I wouldn't have known what was food and what was poison or how to, what was shelter or what was dangerous and what was safe. I just wouldn't know it. But for the people I'm with, it was exactly the opposite. Right? Everything had meaning. Everything had function because they're native to that place. And it's not about effort. No matter how much effort I made in five days, I would not learn an iota of what they know about that place. 
That comes from living there. Yeah. So sometimes I think of it as actually we are becoming like indigenous to ourselves. You can't can you become anyway. I don't know, but you get the point. It's like this nature in here, we have to learn it. Otherwise, we don't know how to navigate in it. The lawfulness of it, we don't understand. If we don't understand the lawfulness of it, how do we navigate in it? And here we are take, taking thoughts for reality. That's like me eating dirt. You know? To take a thought as reality is, well, it's delusion. It's when you, and this is a powerful thing about meditating, is when the mind gets still, you can see thoughts in, for what they are. Some of you may occasionally experience this, or as you practice this, this, you see a thought arise, and it is like a, it is like a mirage. It has no substance. It is transparent. And yet, when we believe a thought, it has total shaping power. It's like magic. Like a magic show. So this is like learning. We're learning about our body and mind. We're learning about the characteristics of experience. We're learning about impermanence firsthand, about dukkha and how it arises firsthand. We're learning about the selfless nature of this nature, this mind and body. And we learn it directly. It's the only way to learn it. When you learn something in that way, you can't get away from it. You know, So you don't have to keep talking yourself out of your thoughts which is what we do when we don't have this kind of awareness. We counter thoughts with thoughts, right? And that becomes very complicated. First of all, it creates a little war inside. I'm a terrible person. No, you're not. Yes, I am. I'm going to tell you why. No, you're not. I'm going to tell you why. And first of all, that takes up a lot of time. And second of all, it's just, you don't, we don't get anywhere with that, really. So but, but to be able to see in this nature, oh, a thought as a thought. Just that is very, very powerful. To see a thought as a thought, not as the truth. That is, to see this once is, changes things. See that? That's not the way things are. That is a thought. Often it's a thought conditioned by a whole variety of things, some of which you can trace back, like I said on the first talk that I gave about a lot of these really deep thoughts are things that developed early due to conditions, like like, um, you know, when kids come from a family where the parents were really out of control, the kid thinks there's something wrong with them. It's a belief. It forms early. There must be something wrong with me. How come this is so out of control? It makes sense in its way. It's a coping mechanism for a child. It's easier to think that it's your fault than to think that the adults in your life are insane. If the adults are insane and they are totally powerful, that is not a tenable situation psychically, psychologically. So we take agency by making it our fault. So that's a belief that forms early. If you look at it impersonally, you can see it makes sense why it would arise that way. But it stays. It gets reinforced, you know, and 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 then it just seems like it's the way things are. But it's not. It's a thought. It's just like the thought you have of like, I wonder what is. I wonder whether there's tofu or quinoa for lunch. It's kind of like that. 
only laden with the feeling that this is your whole life. But it's not. So anyway, uh, what time is it? It's time. It's now. (laughs) Joking. Time flies when you're in the present. Yeah. Wow, I, I can't believe it's 8.30. <laughs> um, it's just a thought. It's just a thought. See, this is where we get into it, because it's just a thought. But if I continue, Howie's going to talk to me about it later. <laughs> so, that's another thought. That's another thought. <laughs> so... <laughs> So let's, let me pause for a moment. One, one place where you can start to really unpack this sense of like a condition sequencing is by looking at intention. Before every action you take, there's an intention that arises. Often you don't notice it. Like you get to the end of your walking lane. What makes you turn around? Can you notice what it is? Something arises that makes you turn. And before that, you don't turn. Do you decide when that arises? Before you know, it's interesting. You watch intentions come and go. It's time to turn, and then you feel that little. Mm, but you're just mindful, and you feel the mm, come and go, but you don't turn. Hmm, how come? And then you wait. I wonder if I'll ever turn. Eventually, another intention arises. Not necessarily as a thought. Sometimes more like an energetic impulse, like. Mm. So anyway, just something to confuse you more. (laughs) I I shouldn't have gone into that. So in practice, often we do have, you know, you may have a lot of psychological insights. Like you may learn a lot about yourself from being here, seeing your patterns and stuff. And start to notice just from being in touch with reality in a sustained way, sustained way, Reality reveals itself for you in its nature. You start to see into the nature of things as they are. And these three characteristics is the, are the characteristics of nature. And so we learn them in this very, very direct experiential way. And this is liberating because it leads us, all three of these characteristics working in tandem and the insight into them leads us to stop trying to go for freedom, ease, fulfillment, where it cannot be found. And we gradually, gently, sometimes imperceptibly, start to just relax back into what we are that is beyond name and form. It cannot be encompassed in any definition You can't point to anything and say, that is it, and yet you are. It is. And you may, this may not be something that like, you feel like this is, but it, it is happening gradually and imperceptibly often. This, we call it letting go or just resting in. And, you know, how, and you may not notice it until well after the retreat ends, because right now you're in the thick of things. But this is happening. I can, can I guarantee it? I'm sure of it. So let's sit for a few moments.
May we continue to look deeply into the nature of things. May we see things, meet things as they are. And may this clear and sustained knowing free us for the sake of all beings. Thank you. Keep up the good work.